So we have returned to 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9, are the part of this letter, this wonderful letter, where Paul is talking about the needs of the brothers in Jerusalem and how the churches in Macedonia and the other churches really are giving to meet those needs. And he's encouraging the church in Corinth to meet those needs as well. I remember uh, it was when I was first interested in ministry. One of the pastors who was a mentor of mine told me now the quickest way to, to get fired is to preach about sports or money. I'm not preaching about sports today, but we are going to talk about money um, because that's what the text is talking about. It seems that the church in Corinth had promised to help the church in Jerusalem, but the work had been unfinished. Paul is referring to the generosity um, that believers should have toward each other. Certainly we're generous with everyone, but toward the brothers and sisters in Christ, especially generous. Paul gives some clear instructions in this passage. For the next two chapters, we'll be talking about giving. His emphasis in this particular chapter, you'll see, is on fairness. He's not talking about some kind of communism. What he's saying is that people should not become dependent on charity. Um, One church should not be impoverished so that another church could be uh, made rich, are almost his exact words. But he also talks about um, fairness in the sense of you've earned your property, this is your property, and it's voluntary. Your giving is voluntary. Um, Certainly the Bible Um, protects private property. Indeed, two of the Ten Commandments are about protecting private property. So there's some some kind of introductory comments uh, as we move into this this really special part of Scripture, talking specifically about giving to brothers and sisters in Christ who are in need. I'm going to read the entire chapter, um, and I will ask you to stand at the end. This is God's holy and inspired word for you this morning. 2 Corinthians 8. I want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, And in your love for you, our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love is also genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And in this matter I give my judgment. This benefits you, 
who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need, so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Now would you please stand in honor of God's holy and inspired word. This is the last few verses. But thanks be to God who put into the heart of Titus the same earnest care I have for you. For he not only accepted our appeal, but being himself very earnest is going to you of his own accord. With him we are sending the brother who is famous among all the churches for his preaching of the gospel. And not only that, but he has been appointed by the churches to travel with us as we carry out this act of grace that is being ministered by us for the glory of the Lord himself and to show our goodwill. We take this course so that no one should blame us about this generous gift that is being administered by us. For we aim at what is honorable, not only for the Lord's sight, in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of man. And with them, we are sending our brother, whom we have often tested and found earnest in many matters, but who is now more earnest than ever because of his great confidence in you. As for Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker for your benefit. And as for our brothers, they are messengers of the churches, the glory of Christ. So give proof before the churches of your love and of our boasting about you to these men. Amen. Please be seated. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let us pray. Almighty God, we thank you that you have given us this part of your holy word. We thank you for these scriptures. We pray that you would be honored and glorified, that the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight. In Jesus' name, amen. The grace of giving is our discussion, our sermon title, The Grace of Giving. I'm going to make seven points, seven, seven points for you this morning things that I think we can easily learn from this particular passage about giving. Let's just start with verse 1. Paul writes, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. Paul was blessed by the churches of Macedonia. He's coming from Macedonia in Greece, if you will, um, the Greek peninsula. And he explains why he's blessed by these churches. But first he gives glory to God. He said that God has given them grace. Their generosity was a function of the grace that was given them by God. Charles Hodge writes, The freest and most spontaneous acts in a Christian's life are due to the secret influence of God's Spirit, which eludes our consciousness. The believer is most truly self-determined when determined by the grace of God. This is really a Christian truth for our sanctification, for all of our Christian living. It's not just giving. 
It's the fruit of the Spirit. It's the fruit of a Christian life. All Christian growth is certainly a result of God's grace, the secret workings of the Holy Spirit. In our sanctification, we are striving for holiness and godliness, but ultimately God gets all the credit. Our Shorter Catechism describes sanctification as a work of God's free grace, whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and enabled more and more to die under sin and to live unto righteousness. Generosity is a part of living unto righteousness. And Paul sees this in the church in Macedonia. For all of us, the Holy Spirit stirs up the fruit of the Spirit, the Spirit of God, also called the Spirit of Christ, so that we are ever increasing in fruit, ever increasing in godliness. And God ensures that this will happen. So if you have been regenerated, if the Holy Spirit has changed your life, there's a new trajectory completely. You move from pursuing your own lusts, your own desires, to pursuing God and what He desires. What you once hated, you now love. And what you once loved, you now hate. What did you once love? Sin, your own desires, your flesh. Now following the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life is repulsive to you because of the work of the Holy Spirit. By contrast, the things that you once despised following after God, these things are now precious to you. His word is precious to you. The fellowship of the saints is precious to you. Even though our flesh still has sin abiding within, true believers are constantly growing in grace because of the Spirit. And this includes a growth in generosity. Indeed, it's not just individuals, it's, an, it's entire churches are growing in their grace. The church in Macedonia had grown in grace. And this, by way of uh, application, is one way that you can examine your own heart and we are commended in Scriptures to examine our hearts. What do you actually desire in your heart? Do you desire to live a life that pleases God? Or do you just desire to live a life that pleases you? If the Spirit of God lives in you, you will desire a godly life. As we've discussed before, sometimes growing up, I remember people telling me, oh, don't pray for humility. Oh, don't pray for patience. God will give it to you. It's ridiculous. God will give it to you because He loves you. And to not pray for those things is really not to understand the work of the Holy Spirit. Paul had found that the Spirit of God gave this church in Macedonia great grace in their generosity. This brings us to the second point, and that's that affliction means growth in grace. God uses our afflictions, our trials, our hardships to really grow us, to make us stronger. In high school, I really wanted to be a muscle man. I did, guys. I wanted to be like Arnold Schwarzenegger. I would go to the gym and lift weights, and the reality set in eventually that I was never going to be that person. But I still worked out very hard, and I got sore, and I got really just so sore sometimes that I could hardly get out of bed because I was working so hard. And yet I did get stronger, and my little tiny muscles did get just a little bit bigger. And it was because of all the hard work and all the 
the stress that I put on my body. The same principle applies in our spiritual lives. God grows us and He makes us stronger through stress and hardship. He sees this in, Paul sees this in Greece. He says in verse 2 that a severe test of affliction was really responsible partly for this, this growth in the grace of Macedonia, the church there. Why is that? Well, in Greece, in that peninsula, they had experienced three successive civil wars, one after the other, as people are vying for power. And eventually the Roman Empire, of course, dominated that area. Historians have said that the South did not recover from the Civil War for a hundred years. We felt the devastation for a hundred years in various ways. So Greece had just recovered from, or was not yet recovered from, three successive civil wars. It was a place of extreme misery and poverty. And they were probably also being persecuted for their faith. Add to all that. You would think that this would mean they would give less and be less generous toward the church in Jerusalem. But Paul says that this affliction that was upon them and their extreme poverty resulted in an overflowing of generosity. That's the point really, is affliction in your life means growth in grace. It's in the midst of the the trials and hardships of life that the roots of your soul dig deep into God's Word and the promises of God. Your faith is, is strengthened in the midst of the storm. The tree comes out on the backside much stronger. Their abundance of joy and the favor of God, the forgiveness of their sins, all of this welled up into generosity. You might wonder what Paul's talking about when he says the abundance of joy. It's not joy at their hardship. That doesn't make any sense. It's joy that they know the God who ordained the hardship. They know He's a good God and a good shepherd. It's joy in the favor of God, the forgiveness of their sins. It's for that reason that Paul could say in Thessalonians, rejoice in the Lord always. How do I rejoice when a loved one has passed away? How do I rejoice when uh, a, a relationship has been destroyed? How do I rejoice in the midst of a difficult trial? We don't rejoice because it's difficult. We rejoice that we know the one who comforts all of us by his love. We rejoice in the one who is our good shepherd. And for this reason, in everything, we can give thanks. We can give thanks because a loving God is in charge of this universe and not some wicked God, not some evil God or vindictive God. He's a loving, good, righteous God. So we can rejoice always and we can give thanks in everything. And it's going to overflow like it did for the Macedonian church in greater fruit. When you look at responses to hardship for unbelievers and believers, you see two very different things, don't you? For an unbeliever, hardship doesn't produce good fruit. It produces the opposite. For an unbeliever, it produces hardness and bitterness and anger and pride and all the worldly emotions that rise up and dominate a personality. But for a Christian, you see the exact opposite, don't you? You see hardship actually producing love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness and self-control and meekness and humility 
and generosity and a grace for others and forgiveness and all of these things that make up the Christian life, these things actually become more evident, not less, in hardship. Spiritual growth is a result. And this truly is a biblical principle. I'm going to spend a little more time just looking at it in the Scriptures. Romans 5, Paul tells us, we rejoice in our sufferings. Why? Because suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character. Character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So suffering produces a a stronger Christian. It produces a more godly lifestyle. It produces a Christian that the world sees. And that's another thing about suffering is that the world is watching you when you suffer. They're watching your response. And certainly Paul is lifting up the church in Macedonia because they were suffering with such grace and generosity that the whole world was able to see. Peter says in chapter 4 of 1 Peter, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening. But rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings. James 1 says, Count it all joy, brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Why? For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. In Hebrews 12, the writer tells us that one of the reasons why we experience hardship is that God is treating us as sons and daughters. For what son is there whom their father does not discipline? At the moment it seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So Macedonia had experienced a great hardship and a trial, and this is true, and Paul's saying, this has overflowed into generosity by the grace of God. Third point we've alluded to already, this blesses the church when this happens. The whole church of God sees it, and it also is pleasing to God. This is verses 3 through 5. They gave according to their means, beyond their means, begging earnestly for the favor of taking part of the relief of, of the saints, and this was not what we expected. You see, Paul sees their giving in light of really a, a Christian freedom that we have not to give or to give as much as we want. They gave beyond their means, and they gave beyond their means of their own accord, and Paul is highlighting this for all the churches to see. Paul later says he's not commanding them to give to the church in Jerusalem, but rather they begged for the opportunity to do it. And it was so generous that the apostles were surprised. It was unexpected. Yet they gave according to their means, and then beyond their means. Why? He says, because they had given themselves completely to Jesus Christ. Completely. This is why they welled up in in grace, in in generosity. Because they really loved God with all their hearts. And they loved their neighbors as themselves. They loved the fellowship of the saints. They lived for Him. Their giving wasn't just monetary. They didn't just put money into the plate. They put themselves into the plate. 
And Paul and these other partners were blessed to see it. Giving, by means of application, giving is certainly expected by God. We're going to talk about this at the end. But we see that the amount and the nature of the giving certainly is voluntary. It's according to means. If you remember Matthew chapter 6, Jesus was teaching on giving and He said, when you give, not, not if, when we're, we're going to give, this is what Christians do, we give. When you give, He also said, the Father sees what you've done in secret, remember? So we're giving to God, like that's another principle. The Macedonians weren't giving ultimately to Jerusalem, they were giving to God. When we give, we're giving to God. And the next chapter, next week, we'll see that it's cheerful and generous and planned and thoughtful and all of these things show God's grace and please God and bless the church. Fourthly, we see that this church in Macedonia is held up for imitation in this way because they were imitating Christ, Christ being the standard of giving. Verses 6 through 7, Paul says that Titus wanted to go and complete this work of grace. And he tells the church in Corinth, you excel in everything. The church in Corinth had, had grown greatly since Paul had last been there in faith and speech and knowledge. And he says also, you need to excel in this act of grace as well. Based on the encouragement from the church in Macedonia, Paul is saying, look at this church, what they did for Christ by the grace of God. And remember that you promised to do the same. Paul reminds them that they also have the grace of God in their lives. In verse 7, it's certainly by grace that the church in Corinth has any love or earnestness or knowledge or speech or excellence or faith. And Paul says, don't slack in this grace. It's verse 8, it's a proof of your earnestness that you follow through here. So Paul's um, persuading the people in Corinth that they need to remember what they had promised to do and do it. Now there is a danger that we're being taught maybe to compare ourselves with others in an unhealthy way. And that's not what Paul is doing uh, with regard to churches or with regard to individuals. I think the principle remains that when you compare yourself to someone else, it should be to graces. Not to roles or to giftings, but to graces. In other words, Paul tells us in other places that you shouldn't be jealous of some other part of the body. Well, I sure wish I got to work in the nursery, or I sure wish I got to play the organ. I'm mad because I don't get to do that. Well, that's, that's, of course, unhealthy. But comparing yourself to someone else's graces, wow, that person is so committed to God's Word. Wow, that person is so gentle. That person is so godly. That's a healthy thing to look at that and then to desire to imitate them as they imitate Christ using Paul's words. Paul was able to say this, imitate me as I imitate Christ because Christ had pretty thoroughly owned and crushed Paul in many ways through many hardships. He lived for Jesus. Of course, he was an apostle. 
So Paul's making a similar comparison between the churches to, to incite devotion. He's not saying the church in Macedonia is better than you. He's saying they've been given great grace and look at this generosity that is produced. Emulate that. This, of course, is, is extremely important for the body of Christ, for us to see growth in each other. Of course, Timothy was encouraged by Paul to set an example for everyone in speech and conduct and love and faith and purity. Why set an example? Because everyone will be looking at the elders and the pastors to see the work of Christ in them. So, of course, it's important for all of us, but it's especially important for your elders and your pastors to be examples for you in ways that you can see general growth and godliness, worthy of imitation. Just as churches were held up for, for Paul um, to emulate, Paul holds himself up and tells Timothy to, to hold himself to a very high standard. This is all for the glory of God, to the grace of God. So look for people in the church who are living godly lives and then seek to emulate them in the ways that the, that the Word of God would seem to show God's grace. Certainly God's Word is our, our ultimate standard, but we all are given each other as part of the body. And you should strive to be someone that could be emulated. All right, fifth point. We need to be encouraged to finish what we start. This is part of Paul's message in verses 10 and 11. He basically is saying, do what you said you would do. This is, of course, part of being a Christian. And the Judeo-Christian values that our country had inculcated from the very beginning show that this was actually part of our culture until very recently. That you finish something, you start. You do what you say you will do. Christians are people who keep their words, who strive to keep their words, who strive to persevere and finish, to remember your, your promises. Jesus compares our faith to actually counting a cost, the cost of discipleship. You remember the two parables he, he tells when he tells people to count the cost before they become a Christian. First, there was a, a man who decided to build a tower, and he couldn't finish it. If you drive around Greenville in this area enough, you'll see houses that are partly finished, never completed. And even though you don't know the circumstances, you kind of feel bad looking at this partly finished house. There's some shame involved. For whatever reason, it's not finished. He says that it's like a person who builds a tower... And yet he doesn't know that he doesn't have enough to finish it and it ends up half built. So count the cost of being a Christian. Or like a king who's going to battle and he, he needs to pause and consider whether he can defeat with 5,000 the, the people opposing him with 10,000. Count the cost. We need to, and he closes those group of parables by saying in the same way, Whoever does not give up everything cannot be my disciple. Certainly with regard to, to the Lord and to following hard after Scripture, we give up everything to be disciples of Jesus Christ. But also when it comes to finishing what we started and, and holding our word to be something important, 
making our word, our bond. We need to finish what we started. And Paul's telling them, hey, a year ago you said you would do this. Now finish it. Now do it. Six point, we give according to our means. Verses 12 and 13, he says, the readiness is there. It's acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. In other words, it doesn't matter how much you give, you need to be ready to give. Be ready. The desire to give, the willingness to give. I remember counseling a a young person who said, I just don't make enough money to give to the church. And I said, you will never make enough money to give to the church. It doesn't matter how much you have. It matters that you desire to do it. You remember that Jesus commended the widow who gave her last two pennies. God sees all things. And that was a more generous gift, He said, than all those rich people who put in a a lot of money. So a $20 gift is a small gift for some people, but it's a very large gift for others. That's part of what Paul is saying here. But he goes on in verses 13 and 14 to say, I don't mean that others should be eased and you burdened. In other words, I don't want you to impoverish yourself so that uh, the church in Jerusalem can be enriched. But as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should meet their needs. One church is really wealthy. One church was broke. And Paul simply saying, help them. You can do it. When we look at churches around the world, brothers and sisters, we live in a wealthy place in a wealthy church. And you could say that about almost every single church in America. That's why we support missions, overseas missions. We support people who are are serving overseas because not everyone shares the abundance that we do. And we should be happy to serve each other in that way. And this is where he mentions the, the Scripture in Exodus. Whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. God will ensure that everyone has enough, and we need to jump in on that opportunity for blessing. And finally, let's look at the last eight verses from 16 to 24. Here we see Paul commending Titus and the brothers who will be carrying the gift from these various churches to Jerusalem. We see the principle that the gift that is going to be carried to Jerusalem needs to be, needs to be guarded. It needs to be um, under good supervision. And of course, if you remember, the church in Corinth had some suspicions about Paul. And it seems that Paul is trying to allay their suspicions that he's honest, he's upright, and certainly they have been repentant. Accepting Paul, again, it would seem, although he's going to defend his apostleship again one more time in the end of this letter. But he's trying to put their minds at ease. The false teachers had convinced them that Paul and his, his uh, fellow pastors and brothers were not trustworthy. So he tells them, I'm sending Titus, you can trust Titus. I'm sending a famous preacher, you can trust this man. We need to be diligent to protect the funds that have been given And certainly, Presbyterians are good at that. We're good at committees. We're good at watching over the money and taking good care of it. Um, It's just the nature of our government, and it just lends itself to this kind of accountability. And praise God for that. And ultimately, those kinds of things, 
even in the Presbyterian Church of America, or Presbyterian churches generally, they're not just administrative. Paul says at the end of this particular chapter that this was all for the glory of Christ. I remember when uh, I first got to the Presbytery here four years ago, and when you go to Presbytery, they put you on different committees. And I've shared this with the Presbytery as well. But I was really thinking, oh, well, I'm fresh out of seminary. I mean, they're going to put me on some examination committee or one of the really important committees in my mind. And I was put under an administrative committee that just reviewed minutes. And I, I struggled for about a day just thinking about this. And of course, the Holy Spirit convicted me. Because every task in every church is important and it's done to the glory of God. There's nothing unimportant. No matter how small you think it is, it's important. It has to be done and do it to the glory of God. In the same way, those who are taking care of the money, managing the budget, counting the money, whatever, it's so important and it's done for the glory of Christ. And Paul's assuring the church that it's going to be cared for well. Okay, a couple quick points of application. I know some people might have questions about tithing. Why do we talk about tithes and offerings? I thought tithing was something that was Old Testament. But what does that have to do with the New Testament church? Theologians have often separated all the laws, categorized all the laws in the Old Testament, if you will, into three basic categories. The moral law, which is the Ten Commandments. The moral law. And that's always ever-present for us today, binding upon all of us the moral law. Only now, like we said before, we love God's law. It gives our hearts great pleasure not to lie, not to, to steal, to honor God. But then there were two other parts of the, of the law that, that you can categorize every single law into one of these other two categories. The ceremonial law, which was all the laws related to, to the worship in the temple um, or the tabernacle, the bringing of lambs for certain sin offerings or bringing peace offerings or all that kind of thing. In the ceremonial law, we see pointed to Jesus and His sacrifice and the holiness of His worship. But then there are also another group of laws called the civil laws in Israel. You see, Israel was a, a state. It was a country. And God gave them civil laws to govern that country. All kinds of things in the civil law. And we would say the ceremonial law is abrogated because it points to Christ. We're not bringing lambs and sacrificing them out on the front porch of the church or anything. So we don't follow the ceremonial law. We just we learn from it. We cherish it because it pointed to Jesus and His sacrifice. And it pointed to what holy worship should be like. By the same token, the civil law is not something we hold tightly to. We don't follow each part of the civil law as a law for life. Except, as our confession says, the generally, general equity of it requires. What does that mean? Well, Paul gives us a few examples in the, Old Testament of him, in the New Testament of him applying civil law to, to New Testament church life. So civil laws that are restricting incest or homosexuality or other sexual deviances, yes, we still apply those to our culture. They certainly are related to the moral law very directly. But other civil laws, 
We just take the general equity of it. In other words, we take the lesson from it and we apply it the best we can. There are prohibitions in mixing different fabrics or crossbreeding different cows. Cities of refuge. Tithes that supported the ministry of the priests. These are all part of the civil law. So those who argue that the giving of tithes, because it was part of the civil law, that argue that tithing is abrogated, technically you're right, because we don't have priests that live in Israel that we're sending money to support or anything like that. But to say that Christians are not required to give, that's of course absurd. That's not what Scripture teaches. Not only does everything belong to God, but to be stingy with our gifts is to dishonor His majesty. So giving is a non I mean, we're going to be giving. For this reason, the church has historically and rightly maintained the principle of the tithe as a starting point for giving. We're taking the principle of the tithe and we're applying it, the general equity of the principle, to our church life. You might say, well, that seems like a stretch. Well, listen how Paul uses part of the civil law. There's a part of the law in Deuteronomy that says, do not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. So what does that have to do with church life? Well, Paul says it's because of that principle that a pastor should be paid. He's treading out the grain. He's working and he should get a little bit of the benefit of that work. So you see how Paul takes something that seems like it doesn't apply to us at all. Not many of us have an ox. Not many of us tread grain. But he takes that principle and he says this applies to the church. It does. And here's how. By the same point, you can see that tithing, the giving to support the priests and their local work around the town that you live in, would be easily applied to a local church. And that's the way that churches for millennia have applied the principle of tithing. So let me give you a few biblical uh, principles uh, just very quickly. We're going to talk about this uh, a little bit next week, but... First fruits and best fruits, we honor the king, we trust the king, and we give him our first fruits. Tithes and offerings. This implies a systematic, regular giving to the Lord. And a tithe means 10%. This was kind of the baseline for Israelites, and that's why tithing is still kind of preached in churches around the country. It's a starting point. It's a starting point for giving. So if you only give 5%, Does that mean God is not pleased? That's not what the Scriptures teach. It's voluntary. Your giving is voluntary. But a desire, a lack of a desire to give to the Lord, that should be a trouble point for you. It should be a red flag if you have no desire to give. The local church is the place where tithes and offerings primarily should go. Again, this is taken straight from the Old Testament. The tithes were to support the local priests in that community. Just think if I've known people who said, well, I don't tithe to my church. I tithe to World Vision or some other ministry. And those are good ministries, whatever, Wycliffe. What if everyone just tithed everywhere else? Of course, you'd have no local church. It doesn't make sense. So that's why churches have have taught over the years, that the local church is the primary place for tithes and offerings to be brought. 
Certainly, the context of this particular chapter is giving to alleviate poverty. And that's always appropriate. Giving to the poor. That's a separate thing from tithing. Maybe an offering to the Lord would be giving to to those who are in great need. And certainly, there should be no poverty in the church. Paul says, let's do good to everyone, especially to those who are in the household of faith. Poverty everywhere is grievous, and we should try to alleviate it. But poverty in the church should be non-existent. We should be alleviating our needs as just a part of life. We also see, finally, that, part, that giving is part of our worship. In 1 Corinthians 16, Paul tells the Corinthian church, on the first day of the week, each of you is to put aside and save the gift that you have for the Lord. It was part of their, their daily worship. They worshiped on the first day of the week. So those are some points of application. But I want to talk, lastly, with the reason why we are generous. We talked about already that it was a work of the Holy Spirit, and it is. It's part of our growth in grace, is a generous spirit, a desire to give. But the reason, the reason that Paul gives them for giving, and remember the context of this particular part of the chapter is giving. And he says why in verse 9. He ties it to the incarnation, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He says, You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, so that you by His poverty might become rich. The implication is clear. God gave His only Son. We are going to be stingy. God forgave us all our sins, and we're going to withhold forgiveness. God showered us with love, and we're not going to love each other. God showed us all great grace, and we're going to withhold grace from each other. God was infinitely generous with all of us, and we're not going to be generous. We're going to be stingy. If there's any encouragement in Christ at all, and comfort from His love, if you participate in the Spirit of God at all, Complete my joy by being of the same mind and having the same love and being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but to the interests of others, having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Christ was rich and for our sakes he became poor. This is the gospel. He left his throne above and he came and suffered and died for unworthy sinners like you and like me. He is Jacob's ladder. He's the only way between God and man that we are to ever have peace. So do I care that we are a generous church? Well, of course I do. But more so I care that 
the gospel of Jesus Christ impacts every part of our lives. That we remember the generosity, the infinite grace shown to us. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your grace in our lives. And we thank you for the great generosity that you show each one of us every day. Lord, you have blessed us abundantly. Materially, we are blessed. This is true. And you call us to be generous. This is true. But we are blessed spiritually. By your infinite grace, you have showered upon us all that we need for life and godliness. You've put your spirit within us that we could be one with Christ, that we could have a union with Christ. I pray that all of our hearts would be impacted by the gospel of Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ died and risen again, would live within us, that we would know the love of Christ for us, that we would experience a renewal of our of our growth and grace. That your Holy Spirit would do His work in each one of us. May the gospel be for every day for all of your people. In Jesus' name, amen.